As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's show, the champions! I went falsetto, <laughs> baby. We've got Champions League to discuss. Chelsea Cruz so past high. Lille. <laughs> oh, boy. Chelsea Cruz past Lille while Lukaku was given a rest after his impressive seven touches this past weekend. Juve went up early against Villarreal. Gave up an equalizer because why not leave 10 yards of open space in your own penalty area? It just makes sense. Atletico Madrid didn't want the ball in their game against Man United, figuring, I assume, let them have the ball as much as they want, and they'll eventually probably just dribble into their own goal, and that sort of nearly worked out. And finally, Ajax, uh, a team whom Joe loves, uh, got a draw on the road against Benfica, who Joe doesn't love as much as Ajax, who, again, as has been established, Joe does love. And speaking of Joe Lowry, he's here with me today. Hi, Joe. Hello, Taylor. I will. I am editing today, everybody. I will be clipping that uh, soundbite of you singing the champions. I don't yet know what I'm going to do with it, but uh, I will be clipping it. Uh, while I uh, silently panic about what that's going to mean, Joe, I won't quite ask you about your love of IX yet, but I will ask you this. Are they the team that, like, if you had the opportunity to go visit one club in Europe for free, mm. you can see how they operate, you attend a game. Is it IX? Is that where you're going? Uh, right now, I mean, this is a tough one, right? Right now, with everything going on at the club behind the scenes and in the board, I would say no. But in terms of how they play, going to watch an Ajax game in person and get a better idea of how they're rotating, how they're moving, uh, yes. I would love to see an Ajax game. There's, I mean, there's other teams. Liverpool and City would both be great. Some teams in, in La Liga, I think it would be fun to see Barca's dysfunction. Um, but, but man, <laughs> Ajax would be really high on that list, Taylor. Joe, thank you for being mindful, because I kind of forgot all the uh, backroom stuff going on at IX and now immediately regret putting you in that position. But you handled it well, my friend, so thank you for that. Thank you to Graham Ruthven for being here. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor. Joe, how low on your list is Sterling Albion? Or how high, should I say? Like, how many teams do I have to get go through before you get to the Albion? Like, I'm assuming top 10. If we get to hang out, there's no teams ahead of Sterling Albion. I don't know why that yes. wasn't my immediate answer. <laughs> Yeah, That's- I mean, you should see the hospitality menu at Sterling Albion. It's just Ooh. meat pies. I can and only that's imagine. that's why I love it. Is there actually a <laughs> hospitality menu? Because that's already like more advanced than I was expecting. 
Yeah, the Stone Albion hospitality is actually pretty decent. Like, I'm not even <laughs> kidding. It's probably not at, like, Etihad Stadium levels or something like that, but it's, you get, like, a meal and, like, a few drinks, and there's a bar, and, the, yeah, it's, wow. pretty, it's pretty good. Okay, there's a bar. Okay, then. Okay, then, Sterling Albion. Of course there's a to. bar. It's Scotland. <laughs> ah, of course. My mistake. Uh, Graham Ruffin, same question to you. If you, You've been to many stadiums. You've been to see many clubs. But is there one right now that particularly strikes your fancy that you'd love to go see how they operate, see what they do? I mean, it, it definitely would have been Ajax before all the stuff that's yeah. come out recently um, about that club. But I, I don't know, like um, uh, Dortmund, I guess, would oh, surely yeah. be pretty pretty fun. Um, yeah, I think Dortmund have got to be pretty high with the, with the kind of the they've got like their training ground around the Westfalen Stadion rather than away somewhere else. So I feel like that would be pretty interesting. Obviously, the Westfalen Stadion itself is is pretty interesting, and then a historic club that promotes youth. What's not to like apart from their recent form? Would would you test your skill at that like the training machine they have where like it lights up where the ball is coming from and then it lights up where you have to pass it to? It's like the football knot or yeah. something like that. Would you would you test your skill? I mean I would I would test myself and I would fail miserably, but <laughs> Yeah, give it a go. <laughs> well, speaking of failing miserably, we've got some teams in the Champions League to discuss. Uh, some teams had a better week than others. We're going to get into all of it. We're going to start with Chelsea 2, Lille 0. Uh, a game that was fairly comfortable for Chelsea, I would say, from the start. Joe, do you feel like this was Chelsea being better, Lille being poor, a deeper squad for Chelsea, some combination of different factors? How do you explain how comfortable of a win this was for Chelsea? Chelsea's talent advantage certainly plays a big part here. I thought from the start of this game, they were on it, right? Kai Havertz, he gets that early goal off of a a header that he has, and it's a thundering header, but he's really decisive and active early on in this game. Christian Pulisic, guys, I thought was excellent in this game. Probably the best I've seen him in quite some time for club or country. He was active on that left side, dropping in, providing some depth in behind, releasing the ball at the right time. Chelsea were really proactive early on in this game, and when they get that early goal... Then they can rely on, I think, what they've been been pretty good at under Thomas Tuchel throughout his time there, dating back to last season, which is solid defending, right? Not always defending without the ball, but also defending with the ball and making it hard for Lille to gain possession when Lille has possession, making it hard for them to do much with the ball. There were some good things about Lille in this game and, and some things that we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But Chelsea, when they go 1-0 up, they can afford to be a little bit more reactive rather than proactive. They still kept possession, but they weren't as aggressive, especially in that second half. And Lille, for their part, never showed much of any ability to create with the ball, create consistent, meaningful attacking chances. And when Pulisic gets that goal in the second half, this thing is done. Uh he does get the goal in the second half. We should talk about the first goal first. That seems to be the order of operations. Graham, uh, Chelsea go 1-0 up, courtesy of Kai Havertz. Uh, how big of an influence was he on events in this game? Uh, because Lukaku not involved. Havertz mm-hmm. is. Havertz gets the goal. Things seem pretty good for Kai Havertz these days. Yeah, I, I personally thought this was a demonstration of everything that Kai Havertz can give Chelsea. And I say can because he hasn't always, when he is, he's, he's played it in the first team for Chelsea, some of that is down to the position he uh, he has played for them. I have always liked, going back to his Leverkusen days, I've always liked Havertz through the centre as a sort of centre forward. He, he isn't an orthodox number nine or anything like that. He's definitely a different sort of striker to Lukaku. And at this moment, it looks like he is a better fit for Tuchel's system. Havertz gave Chelsea presence in the middle, as shown by the, the goal he scores from a corner kick. Um, he kind of just runs through the, the Lille uh, defence. Yeah. If you look at where... 
he is positioned before the corner kick and then where he makes the run to, there's three Leo players in his way. So it's a little bit unusual that he manages just to run straight into that near post and, and gets the head on, on the cross. But um, yeah, his runs into the into the channels, the way he held up the ball, the way he brought others into the game. I thought that was all really valuable for Chelsea um, in this match. He, he was on he was on top of every single kind of loose pass or loose touch from Lille at the back. There was a moment in the second half when he nips in to steal a, a Lille pass, and then he's off. He's driving in behind. He's getting into the box. He's taking the team forward, and then he gets a shot away as well. And it was a decent shot too. And um, yeah, it hasn't been given all that much attention because of the Lukaku story. You know, he, he's not playing the £98 million striker who was signed to be the final piece of this this Chelsea puzzle. He's not playing as much as we thought he would. But Havertz is, is developing very nicely and it's easy to forget that he is only 22. And I think he potentially, um, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but if, if there's a new generation player who can do a Cristiano Ronaldo by transforming himself into a, a, a true goal scorer from being an attacking midfielder or a winger, I think it's I think it's Kai Havertz. Obviously, I'm not saying he's going to get to Ronaldo levels in terms of his numbers, but in terms of his trajectory as a player, as, as a profile of a player, that kind of that transformation is, is there for him. And, and this was a really impressive attacking display from him. He was he was pretty much the even down to the the way he was kind of um, pouncing on chances in the box, he was making those dart and runs that you would naturally associate with an out and out number nine. There was that instinct from his from him as well, and I, I was very impressed by this performance from him. Do you feel like he is the better fit for Tuchel's system right now? Because that does seem to be the argument that's been doing the rounds. Liam uh, Toomey, or Twomey, I apologize for the mispronunciation, had a good piece for The Athletic about Lukaku's seven touches this weekend. But mm-hmm. how that sort of didn't quite tell the story because it was a lot of him trying to make runs in behind, hanging on the last defender, and the those gaps for the passes to be played or the balls over the top to be played, they just weren't being hit. The, his teammates weren't looking for those passes, weren't looking for those balls over the top. And... You could say that's just individual mistakes, teammates not spotting him, but it does feel like that's part of the system for Chelsea, that they don't want to just force those passes, rush those opportunities. So then that makes slightly more sense. If you're not going to rush them, maybe you put in Kai Havertz. If you are going to try to play in transition and on the break, then Lukaku, when you're playing him in behind to run at defenders, to run at the goalkeeper, that makes a lot more sense. But then in this game, there were so many moments when Chelsea attacked in transition and played really quickly on the counter and it did feel like there could have been opportunities for Lukaku here. And so I end up just sort of flummoxed by where things are for Lukaku and Chelsea. I'm guessing everyone else is, but I I throw it to you, Graham. Do you have ideas about who fits best with what Chelsea want to do? I think Havertz at the moment, and and I agree with you, there were moments in this match um, where Havertz does really well in quick transition. And Lukaku, when he's on form, um, is just as good, if not better, in, in those moments. I think that probably just comes down to confidence. Havertz was getting shots away really quickly inside the box. There was one moment where he drives down the right channel. He then cuts it onto his left foot. It's it's very, very quick and the defender can't get near. And then all of a sudden he's got a, a shot away on goal and the goalkeeper saves it. Lukaku is very capable of doing similar, but I think that's maybe just down to confidence. Where I think Havertz is a better fit is... And this is where Lukaku's typecasting is very confusing and maybe people don't understand with Lukaku what kind of player he is. I personally think Havertz is a lot better at holding up the ball and bringing others into the game and and acting as that apex of the Chelsea attack or dropping deep and, and spinning off passes either side. A lot of people going back years and years 
they look at Lukaku, they see a big physical, um, you know, imposing striker, and they think, oh, well, he's going to be able to hold the ball up. And he's he's not very good at that. That has never really been his game. Havertz himself is pretty physical. He he must be what six foot two, six foot three himself. So he he's he's a big physical guy. So it's not too surprising that he can he can hold up the ball as well. But I just think he has more of that kind of technical ability to bring others into the game. Um, you know, Lukaku at times when he has to hold up the ball can be a little bit clumsy. But when you get him spun, he's he's one of the best in in European football at, at in quick transition. I don't think there's much between Havertz and Lukaku in that regard. But as I say, bringing others into the game and kind of linking everyone in that sort of Roberto Firmino way that he does for Liverpool, I think Havertz is, is a, uh, far ahead of, of Lukaku in that regard. As you said, like this is a known thing about Lukaku, or at least a, a somewhat known thing, that he's not going to hold up, he's not going to necessarily want to drop in, he wants to make those runs, he wants to get into those kind of foot races, those one-on-one battles. And that then begs the question to me of, of like Chelsea would have known that, they've worked with him before, they would have obviously scouted him, I still don't quite understand then why you bring him in and at times expect him to function in a way that isn't really how he functions. It seems like a recipe for disaster from the start. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that is the really confusing thing is, you know, Tuchel is a is a smart coach. The recruitment staff at Chelsea tend to do a good job. They they have a big department there um of analysts and data analysts. So they will have looked at Lukaku at Inter and that was a key moment in his career when he went to Inter and Conte plays him in the way that he should be played and he was so good. Like last year, if Belgium had had a good Euros, I, I had Lukaku down as like a Ballon d'Or candidate. That's mm. how good he was He was playing for Inter at that time and, and for Belgium. And so for Tuchel then to use him in, in such a way and kind of ignore that and I understand maybe he doesn't want to rip up his team entirely but... Chelsea felt like they needed a player like the Inter Lukaku and now they're not using him in that way. It, it, it is confusing and I, I am scrambling for answers a little bit because I, I don't really have that many answers, to be perfectly honest. Well, the the one thing I'll add here, guys, uh, Graham, I agree with you about Lukaku and I, I have for quite some time now about him being best running towards goal, right? I think we, when we see someone with the physical profile that he has, and I'll even loop Daryl DK into this conversation, even though there's a huge golf in class there. People see Daryl DK, people see Lukaku, and they think, oh, put him in the box, you pump balls in, and he'll head them home, right? That's not Lukaku's game. That's not Daryl DK's game either, really. DK's best when he can run at goal, and Lukaku certainly is the, the thesis for that kind of number nine, who's really effective in transition moments. The thing I'll say, though, is Lukaku's been effective for a possession team before, like really effective. Belgium. Right, I mean, Roberto Martinez's Belgium plays with the ball. They are one of the most com- talented teams in the entire world. They are forced to hold the ball. They like to hold the ball. Do they like to attack in transition? Of course. Do they want to create transition-like attacks with their possession? Absolutely. Every single team does. But my, my point in bringing up the whole Belgium situation is we've, we've seen Lukaku perform well in a high-possession team before, which to me points out that it's not necessarily always his fit that it's that that's the issue here it could be the pieces around him it could be the specific tactical instructions that he's receiving from Tuchel I just think this is a really complex issue that maybe we don't even have enough information to answer as to why he hasn't had the year that a lot of us hoped he would then you add in injuries you add in COVID you add in the whole Inter Milan interview situation and there's a lot of layers here that I think even go uh, one step or two steps or three steps beyond just the on-field stylistic issues and I'll admit there are some of those but we've seen Lukaku thrive in a high possession team before, and I really do believe he can do it again. Joe, um, 
I genuinely am not disagreeing with you. I just have goldfish brain. Um, has he been good for Belgium? Like, is it that he's yes. been good in possession and dropping in? All right, because I like. I think I remember a time period when he wasn't as effective or wasn't performing as well, and there was a bit of rotation up top. Graham saying yes immediately has me thinking that maybe I'm remembering an era from way too far ago as opposed to more recently. Yeah, I think he scored almost seventy goals with Belgium, there we go. and, which right. is like a lot. Yeah. He's 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 been brilliant for Roberto, uh, Roberto Martinez. I I can't really remember be- before then. To be perfectly honest, that would have been Mark <laughs> Vilmot. Uh, yeah, yeah. In general, I can't remember before uh, Roberto Martinez. Um, but yeah, for for Martinez, he he's been really really good. Yep. I like the idea that you had a. Oh, I'm gonna forget the the, the movie now where you can have your memories removed. But I like the <laughs> idea of you just removing all your memories. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. There we go. Uh, I like the idea that you had all of your Belgium uh, pre Roberto Martinez Belgium memories removed. Joe, while I'm sort of slightly confused and slightly negative, let's go back to Christian Pulisic for a second because I agree with you. I thought he was really impressive. This was to me the Pulisic that we've been wanting to see, the Pulisic yeah. of old, going at people, drawing fouls, taking people on, scoring goals, being really electric. Really, really excited about it uh, until Thierry Henry decided to pour cold water all, all over everything, which seems to be his brand for uh, for CBS when they're doing Champions League review. But he wasn't as impressed, uh, wasn't necessarily critical, but pointed out that all of the highlight moments, uh, they, they did a whole montage of Pulisic dribbling, were all in transition. And Thierry Henry's point, which I think is fair, is that that sort of is relatively easier if you're going at a defense that's trying to transition back that you're catching them out of position whereas against a bunker team against a team that's sitting in and trying to frustrate uh, Henri was basically arguing is he as effective can he be as effective that's what Aiden Hazard did for Chelsea can Pulisic do that and I haven't seen him do that yet and I and I do think that brings us back to kind of his frustrations with the U.S. where they're playing more bunkered opposition. So do you take that into consideration when you're evaluating this performance? Or is it only fair to evaluate this game based on what Lille were doing or what they were offering, which was lots of space for Pulisic to attack? Well, yeah, I think we need to evaluate this particular game within the context of how each team played, right? Lille defended super narrow in midfield. They they defended in almost more of a 4-2-3-1 block, which is usually a, what we would describe a possession shape as being a 4-2-3-1, and then teams flatten out into a 4-4-2 or into a 4-4-1-1, where they have that wider midfield line of four. Lille didn't really flatten out. They wanted to crowd the numbers in the midfield. They wanted to prevent Conte and, and the rest of Chelsea's central presences from getting on the ball and, and funnel it out wide. They did that over and over again in this game. So there was space for Christian Pulisic in a way that, like Henri is saying, might not be there against a bunkered team. So that's a fair argument from him, but I don't know that it's especially relevant to this game. What it is relevant to, though, is Christian Pulisic's skill set overall, right? I mean, I think that is entirely fair criticism of Christian Pulisic and his skill set when you zoom out a little bit and when you think about different opponents that Chelsea might face in the league or in really for, for Pulisic in the national team. But in the Champions League, he's going to have time to transition. He's going to have opportunities to go out and break because teams want the ball. Leo, maybe less so than normal, but again, because of how they defended, I think there were pieces of that here. I hear what Henri is saying in this particular game. I don't think it applies, but I, I overall, I, I completely agree with that criticism. And, and Taylor, it's something that we've talked about before and will likely continue to talk about going forward. I continue to go back to playing against teams in CONCACAF that are sitting in and frustrating and making life difficult. Maybe that's where he won't shine. But if and when the U.S. makes it to the World Cup, where they're playing stronger opponents who are going at them, who are leaving space in behind, maybe that's where we see the best of Christian Pulisic for the, U- Pulisic for the U.S. national team. Unfortunately for the United States, 
Uh, neither N'Golo Conte nor Renato Sanchez is capable of playing for them. Uh, I know you each have some thoughts on both of those gentlemen. Graham, uh, enjoyed N'Golo Conte, did you? I did, I did, and and um, and N'Golo Conte's form this season, certainly recently, hasn't hasn't been all that all that great. But um, yeah, this this was one of his his better performances, and not just because, not in a stereotypical way either, because. Um, Kante is obviously typecast as this this brilliant midfield anchor, and and he is he is a brilliant midfield anchor anchor. But he offered so much more than just protection in in this game. And sometimes this season, Chelsea have had loads of the ball with very little penetration. Um, against Lille in this match, that this that wasn't much of an issue, and I thought that was largely down to Kante's movement and the threat that he gave Chelsea in quick transition. And we saw that for the for the second goal, you know, where he burst through the. The, for the Pulisic goal, where he burst through the centre of the pitch, I also I always think Kante's decision making is always pretty good when he gets into that into that role into that position as well, and he plays like the the perfectly timed pass out to Pulisic, um, who who kind of Pulisic's finish was really really nice. I like that yeah. finish over the over the goalkeeper because he's kind of on the stretch. You're thinking, oh, has his first touch taken it away from him, and then he kind of scoops it over the goalkeeper on the stretch. But I, I am getting away from my Kante uh, praise. I, I gen- generally Pulisic thought instead. he That's was. Fine. He was uh, he was very good, and as I say, not in the way that we necessarily associate with N'Golo Kanté. He's a he's a much more rounded midfielder than I think a lot of people give him credit for. I think the same could be said of Renato Sanchez, who maybe people remember his time with Swansea or his unsuccessful stint with Bayern. Uh, but for Lille, he's been excellent. Joe, uh, he likely gets a move this summer, or at least it seems based on the form he's in. If he were to go to Ajax, does that really just cement it for you? Are you just eternally happy at that point? <laughs> that brings my two worlds together in there a beautiful way. He would he would thrive at Ajax. He would I'm sure he'll head to a, a club in England or a higher level team with with more competition Bayern. in the league than Ajax. Yeah, could be. I mean, could be back to Bayern. He's <laughs> insanely good, right? Right. He plays as an outside midfielder defensively. He was on really one of the wings in that four two three one four four two ish kind of shape but often comes inside and clearly has that that instruction to come inside and act as a central midfielder in possession. And when he's in midfield, he is their general. He's their conductor. He's so technical. He's press resistant. He can hit a pass with either foot and, and did that in this game to release players in behind. He's 24 and he's got to move. I mean, I would be shocked if he doesn't move to a bigger club sometime soon, likely over the summer. As you mentioned, Taylor, he is lovely to watch as were Chelsea in this one, a 2-0 win for them. A comfortable 2-0 win. I have to believe they're feeling pretty confident about the return fixture. Also means that at the time the game finished, City, Liverpool, and Chelsea, three wins, nine goals, four, zero against English clubs, doing pretty okay in the Champions League. Uh, We'll talk more about how Manchester United more or less ruined that record in just a (laughs) second. First, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We've talked about one Champions League game. We've got three more to get through, starting with Villarreal 1, Juve 1. Uh, a, a game that I found interesting, but kind of confusing and kind of dull and then incredibly stressful at one point with Weston McKinney's injury. But I want to start with sort of the story of this game. Joe, if you're running, if somebody didn't watch this and you're giving them a kind of quick recap of how this played out, uh, I'm going to assume that Juve scoring inside the first minute with Villarreal having had the kickoff is going to factor somewhere in there. Yeah, um, my my quick retelling here, bullet points. Dusan Vlahovic goes off in the first minute, 30-something yeah. seconds into this game, scores one of the best goals that I can recall. Then Juve sit deep, and they sit deep, and they sit deep. They sit too deep. They can't attack. They have too much space between their defense. Okay, these are not really bullet points at this point, guys. I kind of ruined that. But they're good. sitting very deep. There's not enough numbers to go forward on the break. They don't create a whole lot. Villarreal holds onto the ball. They dominate possession. Eventually, they get a goal. Rip right through Juve's man marking, which I didn't understand really in this game. 1-1, Juve are too late to get back into this thing. And it's a pretty decent result for Villarreal at home. That was going to be my next question. Do you feel like of the two, Villarreal will be more pleased with this, especially given away goals have been scrapped? It's really not a bad result for either team. But with, I mean, with Juve coming in, they are the big name team here, which is a very reductive way to look at this game. But they have the talent advantage, right? I mean, they have the skill to be able to come in, especially they have the skill in the first leg, still knowing they have the home leg, to really give themselves an advantage to not even need to worry about that home leg. And they they didn't really do that here, but still, a 1-1 draw gives both teams a chance in that second leg. Joe, I know you were uh, fairly impressed by everything Villarreal, were, Villarreal was doing, especially in uh, possession, uh, which leads to you in our show document asking Graham a, a question that I will now echo because I too am curious about it. Graham, is this sort of their best feature that you've seen for Villarreal, their, their ability to possess under Unai Emery? Yeah, the, the thing to say about Villarreal as a team is they, they are a slightly different side when they have Gerard Moreno available. So he, he is a he's a traditional number nine. And so when he's on the pitch, there, there's a more orthodox look to that Villarreal setup in a 4-4-2 shape. However, Moreno is out injured at the moment. He's been out injured since the, the start of the month. And so Emery has had to change the approach because they don't really have a like-for-like like replacement for Moreno. And... Um, I'm going to draw a comparison here. Obviously, there is a gulf in uh, in class between these two teams. I mean, Joe was Joe was comparing Lukaku and Daryl DK earlier, so I think I might get away with uh, <laughs> comparing Villarreal to Manchester City, right? In terms of their their approach, a City obviously play with a four three three and and three midfielders, three attackers, but it's it's similar in that while Villarreal set up in a four four two, it's still a front unit of six, and all of those six players, perhaps with the exception of uh, Etienne Capoue, who is the who plays the kind of Rodri role, the midfield ankle uh, anchor, they are comfortable with taking up central attacking positions. There is a, a fluidity there. So you have Dan Juma drifting out wide sometimes and crossing for Giovanni Lo Celso, who has played more in a, in a much more attacking role than he did at Spurs. Spurs seem to see him as a, a central midfielder, which is peculiar because when he was at Real Betis, which is really where that has uh, has best form came and that's the, the form that got him the move to Spurs, he was very much... Uh, a kind of secondary forward at times, and and that is the the role he's taken up for 
Villarreal, but it's still with the instincts of a central midfielder. So you have Danjuma crossing for Lo Celso sometimes and, and Chukwueze making central runs. And then you have Chukwueze sometimes crossing for Danjuma and Lo Celso. And then sometimes Parejo is linking up with by uh, with Danjuma by bursting through and Lo Celso has dropped deep to create the space for, for those two to break forward. And we saw the, the variety in the in that attacking movement for the, for the goal that Villarreal scored where the two UV centre-backs get drawn to Danjuma and Lo Celso and that allows Parejo to, to just drift in behind and get on the on the end of a pass over the top of them and, and, and finish into the back of the net. So yeah, I am um, the weird thing is about Emery, he he is very much renowned as an organizer. I think that's maybe why Newcastle early in the season went for him as they, they had a relegation battle and they thought who's a guy can or, who can organize us and get us in banks of five and four. Emery's very good at that. But we've seen a slightly different side to him recently with Moreno being out through injury. And I have to say, I, I quite like this watching this Villarreal team when they do have that fluidity through Lo Celso, who's very, very quickly become a, a hugely important player for them since joining in January. And I think he's he's key to their chances of getting through this tie as a whole. If he plays well in the second leg, um, I think Villarreal have got a really good chance of, of getting through this tie. And history repeating itself for Juve because uh, in the last few years, they have had quote-unquote easy draws. They might have looked at Villarreal as a easy draw as well. And the uh, last three years, they've gone out to Ajax, Porto and Lyon. And it wouldn't surprise me too much if Villarreal added their name to that list. Joe, with that in mind, we assume in the return leg, uh, Villarreal will continue to do Villarreal things. What would you advise Juve to do to get a better result? I'm going to assume don't drop as deep would be part of that, and maybe don't man mark and vacate space to give up an equalizer would also be part of that. Absolutely. Both of those things are on my list. I want to clarify, I don't have an issue with, and this isn't in contradiction to what you said, Taylor, but I don't have an issue with Juve going a bit more defensive after they score that goal. I mean, I am still might, taking th- it personally. I hope that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That, that's but, that's okay, totally yeah, fine. Cool, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. I mean, that's, that's kind of Juve's MO, at least to an extent, under Allegri. They're not this dominant possession team. They do get a lot of possession because of the talent advantage that they have. But they don't always come out and really try to pass you to death. So I'm not expecting that, certainly. But the issue for me in this game that I, I think they'd be wise to to not repeat in the second leg is they just sit so incredibly deep after Vlahovic gets that goal. And they don't really ever attack with numbers. They were they were sitting deep and providing chances for them to to attack space in behind Villarreal, which is why you sit deep in the first place, at least from an offensive perspective. And there was some good movement out of midfield to join Vlahovic in behind. Kenny had some good runs out of midfield before, well, broken foot. And then uh, Morata had some good runs as well. But there, there wasn't enough in that particular phase. They were too stretched. There was far too much of a gap between their attacking players, really just Vlahovic trying to get in behind, and the rest of that team. It never looked cohesive, or almost never looked cohesive for Juve as they tried to get forward. That's half of it. And then the man-marking side of things. It's it's fine to man mark if you're going to execute it, and Juve didn't execute it in this game. And I haven't seen a lot of man. Maybe this is just showing my ignorance about Syria. I don't think it is though. I haven't seen a lot of real dedicated man marking from Juve in the past. But that's exactly what they did in this game. And on the goal that Parejo scores, they just rip Villarreal just rip right on through. Capue uh, has possession on that left side. He clips a ball into Parejo, who scores. McKenney was dragged away from Capua's space by uh, by tracking Moreno. And then Locatelli comes over and slides all the way over, covers, I don't know, 12 yards or so, maybe even further to get to Capua to try and pressure the ball, but gets there late. And when he gets there, he doesn't even step forward. And then Parejo's made a, a run all the way free in the box, and he's wide open to hit that ball into the back of the net. That can't happen for Juve in these situations. You can't have errors of that magnitude in games like this. That won't 
if we see that again in the home leg for Juve, they're going to be in some deep trouble here. It sounds like both of you all are saying this could go either way, which is an obviously fair point to make, but also are maybe leaning towards Villarreal having the slight advantage as we return to Italy. I'm still I'm still leaning Juve just because they have that much ability on their team, and I, yeah. I do think the man-marking mistake probably won't happen again, and they probably will be a little more aggressive, especially at home. But, Taylor, to your to your observation there, this one could totally go either way, and I really wouldn't be all that surprised. Had, had you showed me this match, the first leg, without any indication of who the players were or who the teams were or anything like that, I would definitely have said that the team in yellow would, would probably be my favorites to go through the tie. But it's that thing in soccer, isn't it, that like individual talent, you look at Juventus, they've got Vlavic, who has a knack of scoring goals from impossible angles, uh, as he did in this game. And they've got, you know, Marata and um, obviously McKenny's out now, but Locatelli and Matthijs de Ligt, they just have a, a higher ceiling in terms of their, their individual talent. And so I, I just feel that'll probably get Juventus over the line. But it hasn't, as I said, in the last three seasons uh, where they've had that individual talent advantage. So there's, there's precedent for Villarreal going to Turin and, and getting a really big result. Graham, I really do appreciate the way when I think the two times you've mentioned Weston McKitty, it's been in, in hushed tones as though you are aware <laughs> that it will trigger me and make me sad. Weston McKinney, uh, broken metatarsals, uh, expected to be out six to eight weeks, which... I am told, is not good for the United States. Uh, their final World Cup qualifiers against Mexico, Panama, and Costa Rica. Joe, I got this question three to four times last night at my indoor game. I'm assuming <laughs> many, many people are worried about it. Uh, what do you think this means for the U.S. with no Weston McKinney? We don't care about Juve right now. We're worried about the USA. It's bad news, Taylor Rockwell. It is bad news. Weston McKinney yeah. played so, so well in this game, has he been really in really did. good form. For both club and country, right? So losing him is a massive loss in that midfield, obviously. There are options, though, that the U.S. has to replace him, and, and McKenney will certainly miss those qualifiers that you just mentioned, Taylor, in late March. You know, there are options here. Luca De La Torre, I really do believe, is an option, though, of course, we need to see more from him, and this, this might be the window to do it. Then we saw against Honduras. He was very good in that game, but the level of competition was very not good in that game. It could be <laughs> De La Torre. It could be... I, no no one really thrills me. The idea of playing Kellen Acosta as an eight, I don't generally like, but actually away at the Azteca where you maybe think the U.S. isn't going to have a ton of systematic possession. I'm not in love with that idea, but he can certainly cover ground and make Mexico's life really hard in that midfield. And maybe that's something you want to do in that first game of the window. I don't know. But the other option that I keep coming back to is Gio Reyna, a player who we just discussed as being injured. The, the prognosis wasn't as bad for him. He's out just a couple of weeks with a leg injury for Dortmund. He should be back and ready, fingers crossed, in time for those March qualifiers. I wouldn't be mad at Gio Reyna in midfield, Pulisic and Weya as the wingers, and then whoever's is as that number nine up top. I think that could work for the U.S. Taylor. I think that could as well. It seems like something Berhalter has been hesitant to go for. Similarly, playing uh, Pulisic Central isn't really a thing we've seen as much lately. But if, let's say, Reyna can't go, he aggravates it, he's not there, there's no Weston McKinney either. Could you see a situation in which, in which it's Pulisic Central and then Aronson and Weah out wide? No, to be honest with you. I don't think Pulisic fits <laughs> well as that high-energy, <laughs> yeah. mobile, aggressive, pressing number eight. He's not strong enough to do that job, I don't think. He doesn't regularly cover that much ground for the national team. I don't think he's a guy I'd put in there. I think I'd want him higher. I think I'd want him a little bit wider and really in positions to run at opposing back lines in transition. One more name for you, Joe. What about Gianluca Busio? He's an option for sure. I'm not 
I'm not sold on him at the moment right now. He's been okay with the U.S. in the past. Had some really good glimpses earlier on in World Cup qualifying. Was a breath of fresh air, I believe, against Jamaica at home. I can't remember at this point. But he's had good moments. But I don't know that this is the window that I really want to be heavily relying on Gianluca Busio. Graham, uh, you're, you are welcome to jump into the U.S. men's national team conversation at any point. Do you have ideas on what you'd like to see the U.S. do, what you think could give them a good midfield? Or is it uh, whatever Joe said? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of whatever Joe said. I mean, if I'm Luca <laughs> Dilatore and I've impressed and and uh, again that that three game window, I forget the order of the games, but the the game that he played where he was he was impressive was it at Honduras or yeah. El Salvador? Honduras. Um, it was that last one. Yeah, Honduras. Um, if I am Luca Dilatore, I'm I'm thinking surely I'm going to get the opportunity after after getting uh, after playing so well in that match. So yeah, that that's probably who I would have top of the list. All right, now we come to the lightning round portion of this game's review. Graham, I have three questions for you. You're going to answer yes or no. Uh, Vlaovic, good goal? Yes. Can McKinney borrow your foot bones? Uh, yeah, why not? I don't <laughs> need right. them. And Adrian Rabio, red card? Yes. <laughs> three yeses. There Big we go. yes at the third one. <laughs> How on earth he avoids a red card, I have no idea because he is... He is miles over the ball. There's a yeah. kind of stamp motion as yeah. well. He he really, really could have injured uh, Samu Chukwueze. He's very lucky to have, to have got away from that. So I just can't understand how they, they... I know they look at everything with VAR, but they had a, a like a prolonged look at that one as well and how they still only give him the yellow card. I can't quite fathom it. It was the most red cardy red card of all time. I'm now choosing to fully believe that Rabio's mom was in the VAR booth just yelling at them not to give the red card and not to tell anybody about it. And they listened to her because she's kind of pushy. Uh, yeah, he seemed very confused at, at one point as to why he hadn't been sent off either. There was just a look on his face of, I know what I did there. I kind of forgot VAR exists. This could be bad. But in the end, he stays on. It definitely felt like it could have been a red card. We'll see how that plays out in the second leg. We have one more break to take, and then we've got two more games to get to. Uh, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are right back. Uh, that makes a lot more sense if there's only a two-second pause as opposed to a couple <laughs> ads in between. But we are back to talk Atletico Madrid 1, Manchester United 1, one of the more lopsided games I can remember for Manchester United, and that is saying something. Joe, what did Atletico do, especially in the first half, to make Manchester United so uncomfortable? They played their game. 
Diego Simeone played Atletico Madrid's game, the players played Atletico Madrid's game by forcing the other team to have the ball, right? That's their MO or has been largely for the last, I don't know, however long Simeone's been there. Graham, what is it, five, six, seven, eight years now at, at Atleti? Ten years now. Oh, Can my believe goodness. That? Okay, yeah, so time warp time, baby. That's their game, though, right? I mean, there have been little deviations from that over time. There's moments where they have the ball and can do some really dangerous things with it, Atletico Madrid. But in this one, they were very intent, especially, again, another early goal that factors into how the game was played here. Joao Felix gets that goal off of a, a phenomenal cross from that left side from Lodi, and he, he heads it home, and it's 1-0 Atletico Madrid. They don't really need to worry as much about venturing forward. The difference, though, between them and Juve, to go back to our conversation about that juve Real game, is that they still did provide some threat. They didn't sit so incredibly deep that they never had a chance to threaten and keep Manchester United honest. They did that, but they could always focus in this game on defending first. And it's hugely unfortunate for Diego Simeone and company that Elanga gets that goal in the 80th minute. But that thing came out of nowhere. And that came out of nothing for Manchester United in this game. A strong performance that lined right up with their game plan from Atletico Madrid. A really poor performance that's not been entirely out of character, admittedly, for Ralph Rangnick and Manchester United. And and I think... Uh, I introduce this by saying that it was Atleti not wanting possession, Manchester United, a team that are also okay without uh, having possession, <laughs> but in this case ended up having to have a bunch yeah. of it. Uh, there's a very good breakdown uh, on The Athletic about kind of what Atletico did and why Manchester United weren't able to find much joy. And I do come away from this one feeling like that, that goal for Elanga, well, really well taken. He does well to let it go across him. Then it's a great finish. A little bit scuffed, but still, you got to finish your chances, and he did. It did It did feel like there were some adjustments that Rangnick made that maybe gave Manchester United a slightly more solid footing to get that equalizer. But overall, it felt like this was Atletico's, uh, game, game, Atletico's game that they controlled. I think, Graham, I'm already transitioning to you, and I guess I assume McTominay is on the brain. Uh, but how impressed were you by what you saw from Atleti? I, I was very impressed with what I saw from Atleti. I haven't seen them play in this way for kind of all season, to be honest. Like, this this was much more like Simeone's Atletico Madrid. I guess that maybe doesn't say a lot against where uh, uh, about where Manchester United are right now as a team, that teams like Levante and Hitafe and a lot of kind of lower-rung Spanish sides have seemingly done a much better job of stopping Atleti playing the Atleti game than Manchester United have with all the talent that they had. But, um, yeah, I was I was very impressed with... With uh, Atleti, I thought they did fall down in in terms of their creativity. Um, I thought Yao Felix had had one of the best games I've seen him play for Atletico Madrid. Um, he does tend to step up in the big games. I think he's got nine goals in seventeen Champions League games, which is uh, is pretty impressive actually when you consider yeah. how in the league he has been a complete flop basically. But yeah, I thought. Atleti had the, the the advantage in territory and possession, but the, the goal was their only shot on target they had in the entire match. David De Gea didn't make a, a single save either. And and given how much trouble Minot had defending that first goal, it was surprising to me that Atleti didn't send more crosses into the box. Yes, maybe that's a, a knock-on of not having Trippier there anymore, who I think Trippier is one of the, the best crossers of the ball in, in all of uh, European soccer, to be honest. But Renan Lodi is more than capable of putting a ball in, as shown by the the opener, where it's a, it's a good cross. Yes, the defending for Manchester United is, is dreadful. Harry Maguire is so slow to react to the to the, to the the run of Yao Felix. Um, that was a, a, a thunderous header and something that I don't normally really associate with Yao Felix either. But 
the cross from Lodi was really good. And and looking at that, how that goal unfolded, if I'm Atleti, I'm thinking, right, well, maybe we can maybe maybe we can do that again. And it didn't really it didn't really feel like they they tried to replicate that in any way. So that was that was the the biggest downside of their performance is obviously the biggest downside is they don't win this game. You know, 1-1 from a game they completely dominated. I thought the Man United performance in general was was dreadful. I'll, I'll go on the record and say Man United were very, very lucky to come away with a 1-1 draw from this game. But the that's just a symptom of, I think, a, a, a lack of creativity from, from Atleti in, in this game, which is which is disappointing and, and surprising, particularly because Marcos Llorente, you know, he's played in a central position. My fear for this match was that Simeone would play him on the right side with Trippier gone and Daniel Vasso injured. It was Versalico that played on that right side, and, and I preferred that. Primarily because Laurenti's so good in a central position, but it, as good as Hector Herrera and Condogbia were in, that, in the centre of the midfield against that minded uh, unit of Pogba, Fernandes and Fred, I did feel like Laurenti, I wanted a little bit more chaos from him in, in the match because that's one of the things that he brings and, and he's maybe one of the players in this Atleti team who didn't offer as much as I, I thought he could have. And I really did find Atleti incredibly impressive, especially in that first half, limiting Manchester United's ability to get shots off. Uh, if if that was Atleti's only shot was the goal, I think Man United's was as well. So two shots on target in this one. Electrifying stuff, fellas. Uh, but Atleti, the way they shift from one side to the other and are able to sort of limit space on a big switch, but then still get everybody into position to mark everybody they need to mark so that Manchester United basically end up just passing it sideways from one side to the other and back and forth like that. It was very well done on the defensive side of things. It's a great goal from Jao Felix. I still, as a Manchester United fan, I'll ask this, it still feels like there were obvious like areas that could be improved, one of those being the lack of movement up top. I don't think Ronaldo was particularly helping in this game. Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford staying very wide. The fullbacks kind of complimenting them out wide. It seemed like there wasn't much presence in the middle. And then we saw the usual thing of Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba getting further forward. And suddenly you've got these huge gaps opening up and a ton of space and not much kind of. They can't play to together. It. It, it, that's basically what it is, right? Like they, he's going to have to drop a couple big names. And I think he's trying his best to figure out all of the permutations for that not to happen before eventually he has to make that happen. Yeah, and and generally, I think Ranić sorted some things with his changes, which you referenced earlier there, Taylor. But honestly, I thought Manchester United were so poor before those before those changes. They were sloppy on the ball. They were toothless in attack. They were vulnerable in defence. They were weak in the wide areas. They were weak in central midfield, and uh, they they struggled to to play through the the Atleti press, which was something that. I think Simeone clearly had recognised as a weakness in, the, in this minority group. They just cannot handle opposition players closing them down quickly. None of them. Maguire, Shaw, Fernandez, Pogba, Fred. If you ask me what one of their biggest weaknesses is as a player, I would say, well, they're not press resistant. They are, they are so bad at keeping the ball under pressure. I thought there was no attacking cohesion, which you referenced there, Taylor, with Ronaldo. United's attacks essentially amounted to them lumping balls forward for Ronaldo to do something with, right? There you go, Cristiano, do something with that. Um, when there was a second ball, they were just so deep that there was no minded players around them to win it. And it was just, um, certainly before the first athletic goal, it was just coming back on top of them. But even... Um, after that goal, you know, Man United were maybe picking up the second balls and there was just nowhere for them to go with, with no attacking movement. So I, I really did think it was it was a it was a poor performance. I thought the changes, as much as they seemed a little bit strange to me at the time, yes, you know, Matic, 
Um, I'm actually forgetting who comes on. Talise comes on, Elanger comes on, Matic comes on. Uh, is that it? And Wan-Bissaka. Um, uh, yeah, and Wan-Bissaka. And wan yeah. They were slightly strange at the time, but I think Matic just gives them a little bit um, more kind of solidity. It's just someone to, to get their foot on the ball a little bit at, at the base of that midfield. And Elanga, this is going to sound very, very fundamental and, and um, not very scientific, but Elanga just gave them a little bit of urgency. Um, I thought he was just he was just quickly making runs. He recognised there was space in behind the Atleti defence. They didn't. They also don't like players running at them, and that's how obviously Manetti'd get the equaliser. But just Alanga, every time Manetti were winning the ball, he was giving them an outlet. He was he was running as you know he's sprinting. He was setting off, and you look you see that for the goal. That was the difference between him and say Marcus Rashford, who I think has a, a, another poor game in this one. So. Yeah, all in all, uh, my summary is Man United got a bit lucky and Atleti, this was a bit of a missed opportunity. Jam, would you mind giving Marcus Rashford a hug if you happen to see him out and about? Because <laughs> it does feel like maybe he needs one. Has not been in the best uh, form. This game certainly not great for him. And I agree with everything you said. It makes me sort of wonder, maybe this is a very basic question, and I'm sure they figured out a way. But still, I wonder, if Manchester United themselves aren't particularly good at pressing and haven't proven themselves to be capable of that yet. Obviously, Rangnick hasn't been there that long. It's a difficult system to get going quickly. But if they aren't able to press or press effectively, it makes me wonder how you practice playing against a press. If no one is kind of effectively doing it for the first team in a game, I do then wonder if they if they know Atleti are going to try to press them or make them uncomfortable. I wonder how effectively they're able to practice against that or if they just sort of expect to be able to kind of pass through it because, hey, we were able to get past the press from like the second team that doesn't really know how to do it and doesn't look very unified doing it. So we should be able to get past Atleti. What could be the issue? Uh, Graham, I turn that sort of nervous monologue over to you to make sense of. Yeah, have you seen the reports recently of Ranić talking to his players about doing certain things on the pitch and then being completely baffled that they start the match and they do none of it? Have you seen those re- reports? I think it might have actually been in the Athletic uh, on the Athletic, and uh, I have to believe he's probably talking about Bruno Fernandes, yeah. <laughs> um, who he gets the assist in this game, seven assists in six Champions League games this season, but gave the ball away twenty three times, um, and. Going back to kind of what you're saying, Taylor, about they're unable to do this thing and they're unable to do this thing. So how how do you prepare for you know how do you prepare for a match? My primary thought watching this first half half performance by United is, um, and I mean this only in terms of game intelligence, not general intelligence. But they're, they're a stupid team. Like I, I <laughs> <laughs> they are. Like yeah. they never they never yeah. recognise what's going well and what's not. So when they're getting pressed to death, there's n- there's never any sort of change of approach. There's never a thought that this isn't working and we need to start getting Atleti turned. There's never a thought of like, oh, let's create another angle when Fred gets the ball from the back line. Like, like maybe, Paul, you go, you create this angle, you go out to the fullback position, carry it up there. There's a bit of space there. They just, they just stay in a line. There's no angles, nothing different. They just keep doing what they're doing, which is essentially nothing. And I think that's coming across... In Ranić's interviews, the interview with BT Sport he gave after this game was, well, the first half, yeah. they didn't do anything that I asked them to do. <laughs> it after- was basically the, the gist. And like that yeah. is that has to be a conclusion from this performance. It's like, United, in a football sense, are not an intelligent team at all. No. Uh, Graham, I, I have that exact quote in front of me because I was having a conversation with some fellow Manchester United fans. And after the equaliser, I think there was a... A, a, a spring of, like, good faith in this idea that, like, maybe that was the plan. Maybe it was a rope-a-dope. They sat back and tired Atleti and then hit them. And maybe it was a genius plan for the first half and for Ragnick, Ragnick to come out and say, 
after the performance in the first half, it could only get better because what we did in the first half, dot, 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 I still cannot believe what we did. Yeah, that doesn't feel like maybe he was so pleased by the way things went. Maybe he'll be pleased by that draw. Joe, I'm going to assume Diego Simeone less pleased by the draw and maybe even less pleased by Jan Oblak. Yeah, Jan Oblak is having himself a season and in the worst way right now. <laughs> if you look at uh, FB Ref's advanced goalkeeping statistics for last season, you look at post-shot expected goals, which we've talked about before on this show, it has to do with how difficult shots are to save based off of where they are on the goal mouth versus expected goals, which is just positioning, right? And, and some other factors in there as well, but positioning is often the primary factor. In, in terms of post-shot expected goals, Oblak was the best shot stopper in all of Europe's top five leagues last year. He was elite. He was top tier. This year, he's the second worst shot stopper in the top five leagues per that post-shot expected goal statistic. He's allowed 10 goals more than expected this season, which is almost a 20 goal. That's not a typo. 20 goal. That's not a verbal typo, I guess. A 20 goal swing from last season to this season. He concedes the Alanga goal in this game. His feet aren't set. He doesn't really get his angles right. He's not ready to stop that shot, and he doesn't do it, which at this point isn't surprising. If it's 2020-2021, Jan Oblak, we're having a different conversation. But when we talk about Atleti's struggles, I think the place you have to start and and one of the areas that they'll rue from this game and really from this entire season is goalkeeping. And, And Jan Oblak is in quite a funk right now. Do you all have a read on on how you expect the the second leg to go? Because this one also feels no. really interesting, and it continues to feel like it could go either way. Graham, I'm guessing you do not. No, not at all. Like this this match uh, in the in the first leg could have been anything. I think you tweeted to to that effect. Like it wouldn't have surprised me if Atleti mm-hmm. won this three 0 It wouldn't have surprised me if Man United won this three 0 Obviously, it ends up one one. That doesn't surprise me either. And I feel exactly the same way about the second leg because Atleti this season have been slightly stronger away from home as well. Like they they have been weak at the Metropolitano. Manchester United in recent years have certainly not been very strong at home either. So maybe Atleti go and go and win that game, but then with the individual talent Man United have, maybe they maybe they blow them away. Maybe they put five past them. I don't know. Like it genuinely feels like it could be anything in this tie. I just want Ryan Bailey to be proud of me, so I'm going to make a prediction and say that Atletico oh Madrid will win this tie. So they're going to win that away leg at Old Trafford. I can't help but feel like you prioritized Ryan Bailey's happiness. Yeah, I realized that as I was starting to talk, Taylor. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Manchester United will win. Yeah. You know what? (laughs) I hope Ajax lose, Joe. Let's talk about that game for a moment. Benfica 2, Ajax 2, Joe Hart's Ajax. Joe, why so much? Why love so much? Why? And does everyone else agree? Basically, Graham, do you agree? Uh, But let's go to Joe first to ask. Why he loves them so much. Okay, uh, I if I was trying to explain to you guys or to someone else why I love this IX team so much, I would just show the first 60 seconds of this game when Anthony gets the ball on the right wing and megs an opponent. Just, just not even a minute, not even a full minute into this match. Ajax are out here trying to nutmeg people, and they do that. They're trying to be aggressive. They're pressing. They're playing some just wonderful soccer. They have a ton of individual talent. I really enjoy watching this team, and, and I think that certainly applied here. They don't get the away win that they wanted, and the we away. Oh my goodness gracious! The away win that I think they had in this game. They had a chance to get all three points away from home, but in terms of just entertainment, I think Ajax were yeah. the most entertaining team that we're talking about on the show today. How much of that do you think is just the consistency in their approach? Because 
you know, going back to what, like Renus Michaels, like it's it's four three three, it's it's pressing, it's attacking, it's free flowing, it's really pretty one and two touch passing, like it's the hallmark of Ajax. You kind of know what you're gonna get. So for me, if ever there's a choice between Ajax and some other game, I'm usually gonna err on the side of Ajax because I can just expect they're going to play some pretty pretty football. That is a big part of it. And and one other thing I love about Ajax is from year to year, the specific details of how they play change a little bit based off of the coach, based off of the personnel. But you can generally expect that they're going to like having the ball. They're going to be this this unit in particular is extremely dangerous in transition with Tadic on the left and Anthony on the right and Berku centrally and Gravenberg in, in midfield. They love to push forward. There's these little individual quirks about each edition of Ajax. And this this team happens to have a lot of really, really good quirks. And that's that's really difficult to to achieve though, like because otherwise everyone would just do that. Like they would say, "This is the way we we are." Like you look at Barcelona; they had something similar with with to uh, to Ajax in terms of their identity. Obviously, there are parallels there with with Cruyff, but like now they have Luke De Jong playing up front, <laughs> so it's it is difficult to to maintain that identity. And and so yeah, it's it's. I'm not saying you you were saying this at all, Joe. I'm just saying, you know, if some people think, well, you know, that gives them an advantage, sure. well, they create that advantage for themselves. Yes. You know, like that's a lot of hard, hard work to create that. Do you do you all feel like I actually, like, maybe this is me just giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I think my other read on them is that they are okay with not being the dominant force in Europe if it means they are able to continue to play they want to play. And that is kind of where I see the difference between them and, say, Barcelona, is that Ajax, if they can't get the number nine they need, uh, but they want to make a, a splash signing, like or Barcelona want to make a splash signing, they will do that, and then they will change their tactics a little bit to make that fit. Whereas Ajax, it seems to me, aren't going to go that route. They're going to go with players that fit their philosophy and style and their general idea of how they want to play. And if that means they have to sell somebody on or if it means that they're buying a lower caliber player that's going to take a little bit of time to to bet in, so be it. Obviously, they want to win. Every football team wants to win. Obviously, they would like to win the Champions League if they can. But Ajax seems like a club that is more okay, I guess, living within their means is kind of what I'm saying, or basically sticking to their philosophy over trying to be a global giant like, say, PSG is doing. I agree. I think they are... They are wise in a lot of the moves they make. They sell players generally at the right time to allow them to continue to further their careers and also boost their pockets a little bit to go and repeat the cycle. And maybe the the most important thing is talent identification. This this team has identified so much talent from a, a lot of different parts of the world as well, right? I mean, Anthony is Brazilian. Edson Alvarez is, is Mexican in that central midfield. They have a lot of Dutch players, certainly, but they'll grab players from all over the world and those players, more often than not, at least in my mind, are pretty darn effective for this team. That's something, that recruitment level and the way they've integrated a lot of these talents from different places into this Ajax team, that's not something that Barcelona can say, certainly right now. Yeah, and one of the things that Ajax, I've always thought this about Ajax, that they are very good and comfortable at having fallow years. So I often compare it to... Scottish football with Celtic and Rangers and I do that because I think the situations and the environments are pretty similar you know the Eredivisie and the Scottish Premiership I think the Eredivisie is a better league but you know it's not a a big five European league Ajax are a similar side to Celtic or Rangers but what Celtic and Rangers do when they are struggling they go right well we're going to put five billion pounds on this player or ten million pounds on this player and we're going to put that plaster over that over that wound and just hope that fixes it where Ajax are quite happy to be like right okay maybe 
for now, PSV win the title. Maybe yeah. we don't get as far in Europe as we as we would like. But we're building for three years from now where when we get good, you know, when Celtic or Rangers get good, they win the title or they win the Scottish Cup or they make the last 16 in the Europa League. But when Ajax get good, they make the semi-finals of the Champions League or they build this this team that they have just now or they make the final of the Europa League and then they lose the players that they have from that team. So, you know, for the last the semi-final team, they lose Van de Beek, they lose Matthijs de Ligt. Um, there's probably other players that I'm forgetting from that team. But they then, they're then okay just kind of like building up again and then like every three or four years, they get really, really good. And I, and I think that takes a lot of patience. Did you say Van de Beek in there? I did. He was good and, at a time. Yeah. And De Young, Frankie De Young, I think, was also in that one. They, they yeah, him, they that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's that's really interesting. And it feels like maybe the way most football clubs used to be run before they had, uh, you know, oil money behind them. And now here we are. Uh, I guess we've totally reviewed that game in depth. Maybe we should spend some time <laughs> talking about the actual performances. Joe, uh, who are the standout performers from you on either side? Ah, Anthony really stands out to me every single time I watch him. He's in that Renato Sanchez category of, okay, yeah, this guy's not going to be playing for his team for that much longer. Anthony really impressed me. Dusan Tadic and Veracruz almost always impressed me as the other two pieces of that midfield line of three behind Sebastian Hilaire, who I thought was very good in this game. The player for Ajax, really, and then uh, I guess I'll get to Benfica in just a moment. The player from Ajax that really intrigued me, though, in this game was Justin Timber. Dutch international center back playing as part of a back four. So two center backs in this game, but he was making runs from center back to become another fallout central midfielder, which is not like at this stage of soccer's evolution, not all that surprising, but the specific nature and timing of these runs and the positioning around him, I thought was really interesting and something that I have hardly ever seen before. So I'm going to set the scene. It's the 44th minute, and there's other examples of this as well, plenty of them in this game, but it's the 44th minute. Ajax are in possession, and Timber just step, steps forward and straight up leaves center back partner Lissandro Martinez as the lone center back in the back. So instead of defending with a back two or a back three at this point, Ajax have a back one, like sweeper style in that area. Then Timber gets on the ball and hits a short line-breaking pass. He was progressing the ball by stepping forward in midfield and timing his runs. It's, it's very risky to leave not a lot of numbers at the back, and teams generally don't like to do that. But with the right rotations and the right on-ball decisions, there's a ton of value to doing something like this, to, to having someone join the attack late. It's like, guys, it's like a midfielder running into the box late. I talked about this with Weston McKenney, who had some good box-arriving runs for Juve. This was Frank Lampard's whole deal. It's, we've talked about this plenty before on the show. The value of making those late-arriving runs, whether it's into the box, into a goal-scoring area, or whether it's just into midfield, is that you can see where the defenders are and you can move to where they aren't, right? You can get on the ball then and pick your pockets to get on the ball and pass it forward. So I love that from Timber in this game. Risky from Ajax, but they did rotate to have some extra cover in behind him at times. And Timber's so technical uh, on the ball and, and really, really effective there. For Benfica, I always enjoy what I see from Yaremchuk, and he scores that goal, the header. It's a pretty simple finish from him, but good instincts in the box. I loved watching him for Ukraine at the Euros. I liked Rafa Silva on the wing for them. He's technical. He, he drives down, and he has really the important run leading up to the equalizer that Yaremchuk scores. He drives down the right wing, beats a man, and then plays that ball centrally to Ramos. This is a fun Benfica team. They were dangerous on the counter in this game, which is kind of what you have to be against Ajax. They didn't concede a ton, but I think they were a bit fortunate to get out of this thing with the with the result here. I, I I think I agree with that, Joe. It felt like Ajax had the had the win right there and they let it slip. But I have to say, I 
I was surprised at how much of a threat Benfica carried at moments in this game. And on the break and in quick transition, as you say, you know they they did give Ajax some some trouble at times. They outshot Ajax seventeen to eight uh, to eleven shots in total. Registered more dribbles, had more corners, more crosses. They are definitely a more limited team than Ajax, but. I thought players like Rafa Silva, who was getting doing a really good job of getting to the byline, Darwin Nunes was doing that as well. Vertonghen at times was getting to the byline. That seemed to be something that Benfica tar- targeted and identified as an opportunity as get to the byline, get across into the middle. That's obviously where the the equaliser comes comes from. Slightly unfortunate for Sebastian Hiller that he ends up with the own goal because to me it felt like a uh, a slight goalkeeping error from Pasvier who allows that cross to, to to squeeze through him. But it does come from Benfica getting to the byline, as I say, getting across in, and that that felt like a, an area that they they had some joy in. Yeah, Graham. As we talk about Ajax players and where they might be sold or wh- what their potential might be, Pasvier not really helping his his transfer fee in this game. I agree with you. Not great on the first goal. And then with uh, Yaremchuk's equalizer, yeah. it's a great hit, but he carries that straight up in the air and really doesn't do himself any favors. Yeah. Put that over the bar, put that wide, maybe not right back into the field of play for an easy header. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's the difference between elite level goalkeepers yep. and like, to be harsh, or it's like slightly ordinary goalkeepers as I think Pasfier is, just because that is a, that is a good save that he... Uh, that he pulls off to have that. Who has the initial shot? Is it, is it, is it uh, Rafa Silva? Yep. I can't remember who has the. Yeah, Rafa Silva has the initial shot. It's an absolute thunderbolt of a shot. So it's it's great that the keeper manages to, to save that. But as you say, a truly elite level goalkeeper, as Andre Nana maybe maybe is for this Ajax team when he's when he's available, they, he he puts it over the bar or he puts it out wide so that Yaramchuk doesn't have that opportunity within the box to just head it in. So yeah, he he didn't have a, a great performance on the, on the whole. Uh. I have a slightly strange question, slash very strange question, because we're over an hour, that's when those tend to come out. But before I ask it, any other points uh, for either of you from this game? Ajax are fun. The end. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that leads into my question. Graham, you don't get an opportunity. Uh, If you were Eric Ten Hag, and you were appointed by Manchester United, and this is like bizarro world where you have, first of all, I guess you've you've John Malkovich style taken over Eric Ten Hag's body, but also you have this uh, option. If you were him taking over Man United, would you rather go there and try to work with the players that that are already there, as expensive as they are, as globally well-known as they are, or if you could, would you bring in that entire Ajax team and just have them play for Manchester United? I guess is my way of asking, is this current Ajax team better than Manchester United on paper? Maybe not on paper, but I guess in performance. In 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 reality, I think they are. Yeah, <laughs> not not on paper. I think Man United probably yeah. can. Like those players have been better over the course of their career, but yeah, I, the Ajax beat Man United right now. I, I'm not I'm not even sure that's too controversial to be honest. I think the ideal for Ten Hag, if he does take that Manchester United job, is to get the most out of most of the players that are there but also to have some say in who can come in and how much money he's able to spend on some of these guys. Maybe it's a little Ajax reunion with with some of these players in Manchester, but man, I I would have a hard time. Maybe this is me being naive and, and too caught up in this particular moment of this season and, and really maybe the last couple of seasons. I would have a hard time going to take that Manchester United job right now knowing how much trouble there is somewhat behind the scenes and some of the dysfunction there. (laughs) This Ajax team, I guess, can't say all that different right now either, so maybe I'm just talking nonsense. 
look, looking through the Ajax team that starts this game, I'm trying to figure out how many players would you take from Ajax to Manchester United. So I would I, I would take at least one of the centre-backs. I know Timber played really well in this game, Joe, as you highlighted. I don't know all that much about him, but I think Lissandro Martinez is someone I've watched a lot, a, yeah. a lot and he probably improves my United. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, we haven't mentioned him, he had a really good game, uh, Mas, Masrawi at right-back. Yeah. I think he's certainly better than what Mine would have. Anthony is uh, much better than what Mine would have on the right wing at the moment. I think Graven Birch is a central midfielder. You probably take him to Manchester United as well. And then you probably take Sebastian Haller as well. So that's a, that's a solid like half team of players that I think are better than what Mine would have at the moment. Andre Onana is still there as well, right? He is, but... And I would have said him previously before this season, but I think De Gea's having a decent season this year. All right, fine. Fine, David De Gea can stay, but the rest of Ajax has to come in. Eric Ten Hag He's never allowed to leave. That has his that is his curse. <laughs> He's always been there. He's always been Manchester United's goalkeeper from the beginning, since time immemorial. Oh boy. Fun stuff, guys. Fun stuff slash slightly depressing stuff for me, but I very much appreciate you all joining me today to talk about some Champions League action. Graham and I are now going to go record a Soccer 101 episode. We've got Allocation Disorder to round out the week, and then we'll be back next week. Ryan Bailey returns from vacation. We'll get the fearsome foursome. That's what I'm calling us. I don't want to call us that anymore. We'll get us back (laughs) together. Uh, But until then, Joe Lowry, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, my friend. Thank you, Taylor. You killed the hosting game this week. Great work. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. And I've slept about like 18 hours total this week. So it's been fun and I'm maybe seeing spots right now. Graham Ruffin, thank you for, I'm guessing, also not sleeping that much in order to cover all of the many things we've covered this week. Yeah, but but that's normal, and MLS is coming back this weekend, so that'll limit my sleep even further. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, Taylor. Yeah, how are you with 28 teams? If you've got 14 games to add to your usual schedule of 7 to 8. It's light work for Graham. Come on. What are you going to do? It's light work. Yeah, just ignore uh, San Jose. Oh, sorry. Was I not supposed to say that? Twitter is furious, even more so than it already was, Graham. Uh, Twitter, thank you for being furious. Graham, Joe, thank you for being here. Listeners, thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon.